0: Welcome to episode 106 with my guest, Robert Patrick Lewis. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 to 120 minutes, because it's a long one today, of uh, honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. I like how I'm saying that casually. Like I've never said this a hundred fucking times before. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh I want to give a shout out to Brad uh, and thank him for turning Aubrey onto uh, this podcast. Aubrey made a very generous donation and I want to thank both of you guys for uh, supporting the show. Um, I think I've mentioned before that I'm going to be in um, Portland. I know I've mentioned it before. I've mentioned the last four fucking weeks. What do I mean? I think I've mentioned it before. (laughs) I think what I want to say is that I'm going to be in Portland, April 18th through the 21st um, at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. I'll have more information coming soon. About when and where I'm uh, I'm performing, and whether or not we're going to do a live mental illness happy hour uh, recording, or just a live show. Um, I don't know. You know what? Let's just uh, let's get right into a couple of surveys, and then get to the uh, the interview with uh, with Robert. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a, a guy who calls himself Kid A thirty thirty. Taking it, he's a Radio uh, Radiohead fan. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Mom allowed me to play with her breasts when very young, approximately five to nine years old. Um, That sounds fairly uh, not appropriate. Uh, My mom used to watch real sex on HBO with me. I was maybe 10 to 14 years old. Uh, I always heard my parents having sex. My mother and father both were very open about sex. Um, it's a little too open about sex to uh to me. At approximately 13 years old I asked my mother what cunnilingus kind of was and she described it to me in detail. My mom used to ask me to give her back massages. She would take her top off and ask me to use massage oil. It felt creepy. Well, that's because it was creepy and your mom was creepy. And um in my in my book that is uh that's sexual abuse. Sounds like your mom was using you for, uh, for her own personal gratification. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Since early adolescence, I've been attracted to children. It has improved through therapy and recovery, but I still sometimes have fantasies of acting out sexually with children. It causes me tremendous shame. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was 17, I used to masturbate by my windows so the female, female gardeners who worked at my house would see me. They eventually told their older brother, and he confronted me. Hopefully not with clippers. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention he's, uh, uh, kid A is straight and he's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that's pretty dysfunctional. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Since early high school, I have had fantasies of having huge orgies, orgies involving everyone I've ever wanted to have sex with. I would have the ability to switch from one partner to the next whenever I wanted. Limitless variety is my biggest fantasy. Uh, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, some of them, yes, but not the more shameful ones. She would be far too jealous when she realized how much I crave sexually. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, fear of losing control, fear of my sexual addiction taking over and ruining my life. Shame, feeling like I'm inherently defective. Well, sending you a big hug, kid eh? This next survey is from uh, the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Nutter Butter. He's he's straight, although he writes, my libido has vanished, so I can't exactly say I'm attracted to women anymore. He's in his 20s. And what do you like or dislike about your body and why? He writes, I dislike my disproportionately small, shriveled, joyless, loveless cock. If that's not a name for a band, I don't know what is. Um, I just like my giant man boobs that seemingly defy all reason and biology. I hate the fact that my libido has seemed to disappear entirely, dropped off the face of the earth, and has not returned for nine years now. Oh, buddy, I'm so sorry. Um, Well, I'm sending you a salute from my shriveled joyless cock to yours. I don't know what that salute would look like, but um, one of us would have epaulets on our testicles. This is also from the uh, Body Shame Survey filled out by um, Jane. She's straight in her twenties. Uh, she writes, "I dislike. I like my body in general. I receive compliments regularly, and I feel I have been blessed with slightly above average good looks. However." I dislike most of what others find attractive in myself. I strongly dislike my labia, although they are not large. One is slightly bigger than the other. Um, I dislike that my anus is darker than the surrounding skin. I hate that I have a skin tag on my taint. Uh, You know, I say look at the, the skin tag on your taint as a tiny soldier guarding the boundary between your asshole and your pussy. I like to look at the positive in things. And by the way, I haven't seen many buttholes in my life where I think that is a looker. That is a handsome piece of business right there. I'm not even a fan of my own asshole. In fact, if I saw my own asshole coming towards me, I would probably cross the street to avoid it, as should you.
1: Every human being has weird thoughts
0: going through their head. I'm here with Robert Patrick Lewis, who is a uh, combat veteran, he is an author, he has a book called Love Me When I'm Gone, um, he has a podcast, um, what's the name of your podcast? Far From Centered. Far From Centered, um, an interesting history, um, and PTSD kind of runs through your story, correct or, 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 or not? Yeah, in the last decade. <laughs> okay. Um where would be a good place to... to start? I, I suppose let's start with... Uh, you're, you're how old? I'm 33. Okay. And uh, you're no longer in the military? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, you work at, at UCLA in the business office for the uh, OR. Yep. Um, where, where were you born?
1: I was born in Florida. So I've, I've spent my life up until the recent history in very conservative areas. I was born in Florida. I don't talk about it too much because I was raised in Texas and Texans tend to get upset if you say anything but Texans. So I spent most of my life in Texas. I think I moved there when I was three to five. And then I was there until I graduated college. And uh, a month after I graduated, I left for infantry basic training. So um, that took me to North Carolina, Georgia, and then North Carolina. Uh, And then I started my kind of crazy all over the world, travel to Germany and then Colorado and out here to California. Uh, let, let's talk about the You were adopted, right? Yes.
0: And what t- Talk talk about that uh, experience. When did you
1: find out that you were adopted? You know, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, here in LA, I. it's the first time in my life I've ever run into a lot of other people, not just that are adopted, but parents that are adopting kids or have adopted mm-hmm. kids. And I get that question a lot, because now a lot of our friends have adopted kids and don't know how to tell them or when to tell them. And honestly, I don't know when my parents told me, I've just always known. Uh, And it wasn't, you know, I've heard, uh, there's another comedian, Joe DeRosa, and he talks about like maybe, I think he had a bad experience, but I had a great family, uh, and they always, I just always knew it wasn't in a bad kind of, you know, you, you see it on bad sitcoms, oh yeah, well you're the adopted one. It was never like that. It was just always, they bought- you Were know, all the siblings adopted or just you? My sister and I were both adopted, yeah. Okay. And it was great.
0: Yeah, I don't think it really matters who, who your genes come from. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's who
1: loves you and well, makes you feel special. And it's a great kind of social experiment for the nature versus nurture. And uh, there's something I, I blogged about it a few weeks ago, but it's crazy because- my dad, who I call the guy that raised me, I call him my dad, anybody can be a father, he, my dad raised me, uh, I write like him, I, 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 I my mannerisms are like him, I speak like him, my vernacular is like him, uh, and I look like him. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I was a little kid, people used to come up up to us in the mall and say, he's really got your eyes, and I've got kind of peculiar hazel eyes, and uh, he's really got, you know, he you guys look alike. and. We just always kind of have a chuckle and go, "Yeah, yeah, thank you very much," and, and go on our way, but it's crazy because I am becoming my my dad, even though we have we share no inherent biological genes. Your
0: birth parents were fourteen and fifteen when they had you,
1: yeah, when I was born
0: and did you uh,
1: have you ever met them or talked to them i I have uh when I turned eighteen, I was born in Florida, uh, and this is unfortunately every state has different protocols, uh some just destroy information period. Uh, others, like Florida, at 18, they contact the kid and they contact the parents, and they say, do you want to talk to them, do you want to talk to him? If everybody says yes, they share your information, mm-hmm. and then it's up to you. So at 18, uh, my spring break of my freshman year of college, I went and met them. So, What was that, that like? Interesting. Um, from, like, the inquisitive mind that I have, you know, there's a lot of things you got to go over. Did you know they were 14 and 15 when they had you? Uh, I got like a basic data sheet, like one piece of paper that the people in the adoption agency had filled out that said just basic. He's got, you know, brown hair and Italian background and she's got red hair and Nordic background and and that's it. So I knew a shred. Uh but I think I was just too young and didn't really notice when I was younger. But actually a a few months ago I was going through my safe and I found that sheet and I found where it said how young they were and I went, Jeez, I had always thought they were fifteen and sixteen. Which is still young but 14 15 and 15 because that means they were 13 and 14 when I was conceived, conceived. yeah <laughs> it's nuts wow <laughs> yeah. um and what what was the experience like meeting them uh, you said it
0: was interesting C- can you be more
1: specific uh you know when you grow up it being adopted it does it gives you kind of um I can't remember what you call it but it, it's very hard to identify yourself it gives you kind of a who am I? Like, who am I really? It gives you a lot of, like, soul-searching throughout your life. Uh, and then to finally meet them and see where these peculiar things came from. So I'm very musically, I'm, I'm very left-brained on one part of me. I'm, I've always been in music. I've always been very creative. I'm you know, I'm a writer. I'm writing four more books right now. I like doing creative stuff. My, my father, my birth father, is... Very bohemian, you know, musician. When I left, he gave me some big con- some bongos and and that's just they live in like the artsy part of Atlanta. and That's just the way they are. My Little birth- five points is that where they live? Yeah, they live right outside of Five Points. That's where okay. he took me when to go visit. Uh, and my birth mother was in the army, was in the airborne. Like that's where I get that whole conservative kind of wild hair up my butt, just mm-hmm. craziness. And I could look at him, and I looked at him, and went. Holy shit, that's where I get that. What a trip. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, you lost your
0: adopted mother when you were 13? Yeah.
1: What what happened there? What was that like? Uh, it was, you know, it, I don't know what underlying issues it's caused, but I know a lot of them probably come from that. Uh, I know there's some kind of abandonment issues from being adopted and then losing my mom because it was... Kind of right when I was starting to get to that age where you're going into being a teenager and eventually becoming a man, I finally, I mean, she was my mom, you know, I loved her to death. You guys felt pretty close to each other. Yeah, extremely close. My dad was an airline pilot. So he was gone, you know, four or five days out of the week. It was just my mom and I, you know, and she had been a teacher, so she was very involved, very involved in my education. I mean, that was the number one thing for them. I always played three or four sports, you know. So she, we were just jointed the hip all the time, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, at first, they thought they had got it. You know, she had a mastectomy, and they thought they had killed it. They said everything was fine, and uh, we kind of took a deep breath and just, you know, let it all exhale. And then, like two or three years later, they came back and said, "Oh." Sorry, our bad. Uh we didn't get it, and now you have brain bone, skin, you know. Oh my breast cancer, everything you can imagine, you got a month to live. And that was it. And so it 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 brought up all these different issues. Number one of you know, that the whole abandonment thing of of finally having a mom and then losing that mom, but also having that, you know, like an authority figure, a doctor say, everything's okay, we saved the day thinking everything's fine and then all of a sudden the rug is just torn out from under you and it was and I went off the I went off the grid after that (laughs) I guess it would be it would be fair to say that it really would fuck with your ability to trust yeah oh yeah I don't trust I mean that's and I never knew if it was from that or if it was the army but I do not trust people at all I mean I have like my circle uh, and I trust them implicitly and that's, like, new people that I meet, I I or my wife usually give them the disclaimer, like, it's going to take a long time for you to get inside of that circle, you know? But that's the way I am. Once somebody is there, it's implicit trust, you know, but it's a very close circle because I just, I've just had too many experiences where I've seen people be wrong, people be lazy, or people, you know, the dark side of humans. And I just can't trust anymore. So when you say you went off the grid, what what did that look like? Uh, I just went nuts. Uh, I mean, I was in Texas. In Texas, you know, the TABC, the Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission, hugely enforced. So it's easier to get drugs than it is to get alcohol. Uh, and so I just went off the beaten path, man. I mean, I had been like a state-level swimmer, played football, played lacrosse, play, you know, ran track. It was just sports all the time. And then after I lost my mom, I just went, well, you know, whatever. I don't care anymore. I'm going to try the other side of the path. And, uh... My dad was a pilot. He flew for Southwest Airlines. They gave him a lot of time off, but he's got to go back to work eventually. Uh, So we were raised by uh, housekeepers. I had a housekeeper that was like our housekeeper nanny. She was the only one there. And I had one from South Africa who was very kind of liberal in drug use and alcohol and everything else. And so during the summer, all my friends would come to our house. We'd just have huge parties, you know, and that that was it. And we just party, didn't really care about anything else. Everything kind of went by the wayside, and it finally got to a point where my dad found out what was going on and said, this just cannot, this can't go on. So I got shipped off to military school. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you when that happened? Uh, it was my eighth grade year of middle school, so I think 14 or 15, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was my first cha- uh, taste in the military, and it really it was a slap in the face <laughs> it got me back
0: <laughs> what what was military school like
1: did uh, you like it i i liked it you know they say like little kids want stern authority that they need it and i liked it of that same accord like i knew i needed it the, the, the structure felt it. reassuring yeah i'm from a military family every male in my family has been in the military at some point and was so your dad a pilot? And my, my dad was a Navy pilot, grandpa was army and then intelligence, you know, great uncle was infantry, all these other guys have been in it at some point. So it was always kind of an underlying theme. But my family wasn't one of those like marine families where you're doing push-ups at the dinner table and you know it wasn't like bouncing that. the basketball off your head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my parents were pretty cool for being you know, for everybody right. being military, they were pretty laid back on it. Uh, but when I got to there it was really whipping you into shape. Uh, Because it was one of those schools where a lot of kids got sent there, you know, by a judge, you know, for being just bad, badass kids. Uh, And so I went from being a big fish in a small pond in a, like, 98% white suburb of Houston uh, to all of a sudden basically a juvenile correction facility. Uh, And so it whipped me back pretty quick. (laughs) And did
0: you... Was there conflict with the other kids did you have to find your place in that did you have to fight to survive what 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 were your coping mechanisms in in that military school
1: you know one thing that i i've always got from my dad is that i'm like a social butterfly you know he likes to call it. i just get along with anybody anytime growing up in high school everybody you know i went to like a very suburban clicky high school where you had jocks and stoners and skaters and i i was always friends with everybody like i get along with people i don't care what the label on you is like if you're a good person i don't care what you're labeled as or how you dress if you're a good person you're a good person i like you i like you now if you're a bad person i, I same thing like i can get along with anybody so i just kind of fit in just, now were you still <laughs>
0: letting people get close to you at that at that point or were your was your wall kind of kind of up I, even though you were gregarious you know you were saying that you have this you'll only let people into a certain point. Did that come later? I think that came later.
1: Because I was okay. still, you know, I was young. I was still making friends. And I had all my friends back home that we still, like, wrote letters to. This was before email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely before podcasts. <laughs> but we would send actual emails back and or back, actual letters back and forth. And we had, like, a bank of pay phones that we could call every once in a while. And, yeah, so I, had, I, I made new buddies there. Um, but even, like, once I finally left military school, I maybe talked with one of them once and that was about it so friends but kind of like i know you're not going to be in my life very long friends mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and so did you go for four years three years
1: no it was only one year one oh. full year so i went the end of my eighth grade year came home for the summer and then the beginning of my ninth grade year and uh i just i told my dad like hey i finally i think i i got it i think i'm i i'm back i got it and uh my grades were doing great. You know, he he talked to everybody at the school. I was doing great, so he brought me back. And were drugs and alcohol still a problem? Did you get back into sports? What what kind of... I got back into sports, uh, and that was, yeah, I didn't really... My wife likes to say I was a bad kid, because my wife was... We met freshman year. As soon as I got back, we met there my freshman year of high school. Uh, and she's never done anything. She's just always been a goody-goody. She was a cheerleader her whole life. Just that's... Never done anything, and you know these days for somebody that's never even smoked pot that's kind of that's really wow, yeah. really you' none <laughs> never uh, never, <laughs> but she hasn't she's never done anything, so like even you know smoking pot is makes you a bad kid for her, but I was I still got into a lot of fights, uh, but it wasn't you know it wasn't the level it was before I went, okay, yeah, but still so it, something had changed, yeah, i definitely I, I it was the cold splash of water I needed, that was for sure yeah. So what's what's the next seminal moment in your in your life? Uh I went through high school was kind of the same. You know, i playing sports the whole time. Um, went to college. Uh where'd you, know, you go to school? I started off at the University of Texas, graduated from Texas State. So UT is in Austin, Texas State in San Marcos about thirty minutes, depending on what time of day mm-hmm. down the road. Uh and then I was actually, at the the end of high school, I was the first guy in my family that was given the option. You know, military, college, uh, or just go to college. And again, my family, they're all military, but they're pretty laid back and they Mm -hmm. understand it's got to be your thing. And my senior year of high school, my dad and I got together and he went, you're not going to the military. And I went, no, not at all. (laughs) So I did that and then September 11th happened, my sophomore year of uh, college. And uh, my dad had been an airline pilot, so it really hit close to home for me. And uh, I woke up and saw all the stuff that was going on in the news, and uh, I took kind of a day to reflect, and then I went, okay, I guess that's my sign. So I went and I went to the recruiter's office as soon as I could, signed up for the delayed entry program. Uh, so it allowed me to finish out my college degree and then leave a month after I graduated. And so
0: how much time between when you went to the recruiting office until you entered the the Army? I think two
1: years. Okay. I would have gone immediately, uh, but all the men in my family were military officers, and they just said, the war is going to be here. This one's going to last a while, so just you know, hold on to your horses. Yeah. Just do this whole delayed entry thing, and you can do it. So,
0: And so then you went in as an officer as opposed to a uh,
1: Nope. I went enlisted. Okay. Uh, it was the option because I had the degree, uh, but I just I don't know. All the men in my family had been officers, and you don't always get your choice when you're an officer they kind of go needs of the army you know and and i just knew my place i knew my place was fighting it was either infantry or a ranger or green beret or something like that it wasn't i just wasn't going to fit anywhere else i wouldn't be happy wearing a uniform but doing logistics do you think that that's <clears throat> uh from having a sports background i think i've had something to prove my whole life i've always had something to prove uh and I think that was a big part of it, just saying, uh, you want to fight? All right, I'm going to fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: What was, did you have a fantasy in your head when you enlist, when September 11th happened? And describe what you, what you were thinking and feeling when you made the decision to go into the military. What did you, you know, because a lot of times we'll kind of picture in the future what, how it's going to unravel mm-hmm. and why we're doing what we're doing. What was, what was, it that you were specifically kind of picturing or fantasizing about happening?
1: I knew, and I know a lot of guys probably say this uh, after the fact, but I, I knew I, I I belonged in some kind of special operations. I remember seeing those first images after September 11th of the Green Berets that went into Afghanistan that were there in a few weeks, and seeing the guys, the, long, the beards and the long hair, riding horses, wearing the local gear you know, with AK-47s, and and I knew that was my thing, like just the romantic at heart that i was, you know, always being an athlete, always doing pretty well in school and always being kind of the not the rebel but just not fitting within the box, you mm-hmm. know, my whole life i knew that was where i belonged. Are you an adrenaline junkie? I love it, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I saw the picture that that <clears throat> of you with the beard and you you look like you're an afghani
1: with your and rifle over your shoulder. A lot of a lot of people, especially in the army, a lot of non-special operations, especially like officers and generals, love to say that it's just because we're trying to be a pain in the ass of everybody else in the army. But you really do fit in when you start doing that. Uh, if you have the language, you grow the beard, you start dressing like that, you know, shower for a few months. Uh, we had guys on our team that are Afghani commandos used to actually think we're Afghani's, uh, and you really do. That's that's the whole point. Green Beret is supposed to blend into their environment. And you really do. If you do it right, you can do it. So, what does it take to become? Walk me
0: through, from getting in the army to becoming a Green Beret, because that—that's special ops. Is yeah. that what? Yeah. Um, that's the same thing. Green Beret and special
1: ops are well, the special forces. Uh, special forces. Uh, so, when you hear somebody say special forces, if they're using the term appropriately, I uh, mean, it's the Green Beret. Uh, we actually have—we're called long tabbers. You have the special forces tab on your shoulder. All the other ones, seals, rangers—they're all special operations. They still fall under the SOCOM, Special Operations Command. But special forces itself are the Green Berets.
0: And so, what does it take <laughs> to become a Green Beret, other than a gigantic pair of testicles uh, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a big spatula of crazy?
1: Yeah, it's more crazy than testicles, that's for sure, uh, and some masochism in there. I think you gotta just love pain. Uh, but that's the big part of it is getting to selection. Uh, so they had this eighteen X-ray program when I went in that guaranteed you a shot at selection. So you'd go infantry basic training, airborne school well, infantry basic training, airborne school SOPSI, which was just weed out. What's just what's SOPS? Special Operations Preparatory and Conditioning F- Course. The fucking acronyms You know that's one of my all I, of them, I love
0: reading yeah. books about mm-hmm. Navy SEALs and stuff like that. But the acronyms, it's yeah. I don't even that's even more amazing to me than going into battle is how you guys remember all those acronyms.
1: Yeah. And they you know they do it to make it easier, but it's so damn difficult, especially in special operations when you have everything starts with an SO or they get, you know, Siegesot of AP. Like what? There's Siegesot of AP, there's Siegesot of AF, there's Siegesot of and you just go, just what? What is it? I like? so <laughs> apologize to
0: the person that, that has to transcribe this episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I mean, that was I was getting ready to finish Love Me When I'm Gone and, and I was giving it to beta readers and, and I had a couple come back and go, what the fuck are you talking about? And so I include like a five-page index at the back that's nothing but acronyms and just lays them all out. Um, and what was that last thing that you were saying? What were you calling it? SOPSI or the CJISODF AP? Yeah. What, what is that? CJISODF is Conjo- uh, Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, like Arabian Peninsula or Iraq or Africa or whatever it is. It's, uh, so what's the acronym for that? Uh, CJISODF which is, is it's C J S O T F? Oh, okay. C J S O T F. and that's the thing it, a lot of times it doesn't even sound like what it's yeah it's I was <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. and that's we even make abbreviations of acronyms within the community because you don't have enough time to say C-J-S-O-T-F every time you got to talk about it so we just say Sotf or HQ or whatever when you're on the base in Baghdad or Kabul or wherever it is uh, but SOPSI was Special Operations Prep and Conditioning and it was just a weed out course. Like what would you have Nothing to do? Else. Give me a give me an average day in the weed out course. So let's see, you would wake up at like 3 or 4 and then go run 5 to 10 miles depending on what they felt like. You go eat breakfast for about 30 minutes. They take you out to a field and then you do push-ups and sit-ups and wade through icy water and then, you know, jumping jacks and climb ropes and then come down from the ropes and do push-ups and climb the ropes again and come down to do push-ups and just, we call it smoking you in the army. Just nothing but physical exertion no brain no nothing to it just beat you up that's it and that's like the first two weeks
0: and so what do you do when you're in the middle of one of those and and your body is just full of lactic acid and you don't have another push-up in you what What do you do or do you just keep going do you are you Go. able to find that
1: strength to keep doing it yeah i mean that's I have friends, uh, every Green Beret in his career has to go back and teach at some point. They go back to Swick, back to Fort Bragg, and they have to be the people that are assessing that, that class and kicking people out or pushing them through or, or whatever it is, and, and all my friends that have gone back have said the same thing. It's not about whether you can do the other push-up, it's whether you try, you know, because mm. there are a lot of people that just stop and go, I'm, I'm done, whatever, but then the guys that make it are the guys that go, well, I might have another one in me, or and you mm. just try, you know, And that's one of the big things about selection and that whole uh, qualification course is it's not always the strongest or the toughest or the biggest guy. It's that guy that can make that mental designation that says, this is going to suck. This is going to hurt. I'm not going to have any skin on my feet in a couple of days. But I want that. I want that goal more than this is going to hurt. And I'm just going to put my head down. And I'm going to go. And that's what you it know,
0: is. I'm, I'm struck as you talk about that, that people that have been through things that are difficult emotionally and are trying to heal or make sense of their pain, the people that I've known that have the best chance of recovering are the people that have a dogged willingness. Mm-hmm. Stubborn. They, they, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. they just, you know, they they don't necessarily do it gracefully, but they just keep Doing it, e- even if it's humiliating, even if it, they look bad, they just keep getting up and saying, "I'm not. I'm. Uh, I
1: want to get better. I, please help me. Yeah. Please help me. Please help me." And that it may be. I mean, it may be one of the many reasons they select the people that they select. It may be that that, that mental state is one of the ones that they know will be needed. You know, later on down the road when something horrible happens. Uh, you know, my old roommate um, from when I was. In North Carolina, going through the Q course, um, I, one of my roommates, well, both my roommates went to third group, which does Afghanistan and, uh, and South America. I went to 10th group, so I went off to Germany. And uh, when he was in Afghanistan, he lost eight guys from his team. So eight of his best friends died in one night. Wow. He was at uh, Anaconda, uh, which is, if you watch like the Discovery Channel stuff on Green Berets, Anaconda pops up. And he lost almost all of his team in one night. And so I think that's, and it happens a lot with uh, with SF guys. And I think that has to be one of the things I select for. Just it takes a certain kind of person to go out every day and know that's a real possibility. Like, that's a real, I mean, everybody in a combat zone has that chance of a mortar falling on them or a rocket hitting them or their amb- uh, convoy getting ambushed or ID'd. But a, a Green Beret or an infantry guy or a ranger, you're not, just waiting for it to happen. You're inviting it, and you're going to it. You know, you're walking into that every day, and so it just—it's got to be a part of your brain. It's just got to be in there. Wouldn't
0: it just be easier to buy a green beret and pretend <laughs> that you're one? <warm? laughs>
1: happens a lot. It happens a lot, actually. Uh, I bet guys—I bet guys, guys, guys get laid in bars walking around oh, with that. Yeah. Uh, with that. Well, and that's—that's that's the biggest key, I think. If you're in a bar and you hear a guy talking about how many people he's killed and how awesome he is and how many medals he has, he's not. A, he's not. He's full of shit. Because after you've really killed people, you don't brag about it. You don't talk about it. It's not, we don't get together and, you know, share beers and, and, and tell love stories about that. It's something that once you've done it, it changes you. And we nobody likes the way it changes you. It's not a good thing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, uh, and actually anybody that wants to know a little bit more about that, there's a book called On Killing. It's by uh, Dave Grossman, who was a ranger, got out, and got his psychology degree. And he said, why aren't there any books on this? And so he did it. He wrote it. It's On Killing. It's really On Killing. It's about the psychological tolls of killing humans. You know, it talks about how biological organisms, mammals, aren't meant to kill each other. You see dogs fight. They bare their teeth. They posture. But they don't kill each other. You know, even if they go for each other's throats, they don't kill each other. And this is something very wrong with that animal, you know, And, and... most animals within the same species will not. They'll kill other species. They'll hunt. They'll do things like that. But we're not programmed to kill each other. And it goes into very great detail about how the military, in World War II, most people would raise their guns and shoot at the sky because they didn't want to kill each other. So the military got together and said, we've got to change this. You know, so they found ways to reprogram and retrain and, and kind of desensitize humans into being able to kill each other. And it still messes with you. I mean, it, it becomes easier. You know, for us, we don't hesitate anymore. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, World War II was a lot of, you know, you're here and I'm here. There's defined lines. But the war now, you know, when I got shot, I was in the middle of a village, 270-degree fire coming at us. So oh, my So you God. really are kill or be killed. Uh, so that's a lot easier, you know, but there's still the situations where you get ambushed from a couple hundred meters away, and, and you know, you, you, your brain still goes, we could get out of here, uh, but you know if, if I leave, they're going to ambush somebody else. So that's another part of that whole, like, special forces mentality is I'm not going to walk away from this fight and let these guys kill another American or another Afghan or another anybody. We're going to go get them, you know, and it uh, it's scary that it gets easier. You know, after the first one, it gets easier. What's it like the first time you're you're, you're shot at? What's, what, how does your body react? Terrifying. Uh, and that's, everybody likes to romanticize that they're gonna be a Rambo. You know, you're gonna hear a bullet and you're gonna know exactly where it came from and you're gonna do everything perfectly and you're gonna go get the bad guy and be the hero. Uh, but in reality it's absolutely terrifying, because you don't know where it came from. There is no base. it's not a video game where you turn around and you see an arrow pointing at the bad guys, <laughs> or like, flame coming through there. You know, they're smart, and you know, if you can have like a, like we have flash suppressors on our weapons, and so do they. So a lot of times you won't even see a flash, you just hear pop, pop. And that's the big thing, you hear a pop, then you know they're shooting at you. You hear a whiz, you know they're shooting very close to you, you know? and. It's it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, there's nothing. Your adrenaline goes a million miles a second. Uh, you're worried about so many different things. You're trying to figure out where it's coming from, and that's why we train so much. You know, that's that's the the whole thing about Green Berets. We're masters of the basics. You know, and that's that's what we do. You do the basic reactions to to certain combat situations. You know, a couple dozen times a day all day so that when you get into that situation your brain doesn't have to think, you react. You just, muscle memory, you just do what you were trained to do. And And so
0: what would you do when you heard the fine cover? Is that the first thing? Well,
1: there's Uh, this thing called 7-8. It's FM 7-8, Field Manual 7-8, another acronym. 7-8? 7-8. Oh, 7-8. It's the Ranger Handbook, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of our doctrine. It's it's the military combat doctrine, basically. And so you have all these different uh, react-to-contact, react-to-ambush, react-to-near-ambush, react-to-far-ambush, all these different kind of set circumstances that can happen, and what you do to react. Um, And that's the basis. That's the starting point of of what you do. So, everybody on on an ODA has done that so many times. What's an ODA? Operational Detachment Alpha. It's it's a team. It's like the functional unit of Green Berets. So, about anywhere between 8 and 12 guys. Uh, So, when you hear a a round come off at you, you have a set thing. Everybody gets down on the ground. Everybody gets online. You know, if anybody knows where it is, you yell at distance and direction, you know, 32 degrees, 500 meters, or, you know, sometimes it's, you know, 10 meters and they're fucking all around us. (laughs) Wow. But that's like your thing and everybody echoes it. So everybody hears the same holy shit they're all around us or whatever but you lay out the distance and direction and then you kind of and it even lays out how you negotiate towards or away from the enemy or split up and take them out or flank them or whatever you're going to do but it's just ingrained in your brain. So if you can figure out where the rounds are coming from you Go go get them! <laughs> wow,
0: yeah, I can't I can't
1: even wrap my head around what
0: it's got to be like to be surrounded by people shooting at you.
1: Yeah, and that's you know the the hard part about it in the military in the in infantry you really schooled that whole the best defense is a good offense you know what I mean so when you got uh, platoon uh, or a company of of infantry guys. You know, if you've got 30 something infantry guys, you've got heavy weapon squad and all this, that's great. Somebody shoots at you, just unload everybody at once, unload, and they get the fuck down. Uh, but when it's an ODA, you got 10 of you, and, you know, there might be 70 or 80 of them. And so the tables are turned. You know, that's why we have a lot of like predator drones overhead. We carry as much as we can humanly carry. And that's one of the big reasons they in all of our training, you carry really, really heavy loads because when you get out to a team, you really have to be carrying a mortar, you know, rounds, ammo, water, every, you know, grenades, 203, you know, a grenade launcher that goes on your gun, anything you can carry because with only 10 guys, you need as much firepower as you can get because you don't know what you're walking into. Wow. So talk about
0: if there is an emotional arc to going from boot camp to the Green Beret to being in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. to being changed in Afghanistan. What can you talk
1: about the arc of your soul? The first, uh, my wife's Buddhist. Uh, My wife is Buddhist, so she has a lot of ideas about you know, earthbound spirits and energies. And I believe, you know, you, you know, having that pre-med background and knowing a lot about chemistry and physiology and vibrational energies, I, I do believe that that there is something that can rub off on you. And so my first kind of change to my soul was probably my first trip to Iraq. Uh and I hadn't been on the team very long. I went to Iraq and uh I was working in a hospital. I was a medic. I was an eighteen Delta Special Forces medic. So to keep up our accreditations, every few years you have to go to a hospital and work in you know in, in the cash or the FST or the ER or the O R or whatever, just to keep up your What's Cash? Cash is a combat support hospital. If okay. you want to MASH, yeah, you know, it's kind of the same thing. And then there's the FST Ford Surgical Team, and you know all, all, all those other acronyms. Again, apologize to the transcriber. <laughs> <A> <laughs> deepest <laughs> apologies. Yeah. But that one was was nuts because it was I had been through the medic course. I had worked in hospitals. I had, I had worked at uh, Tampa General, you know, in the ER during spring break. Like, so you'd seen some shit. I had seen some, yeah, a little bit. But that was the first, like, holy shit, we were at the hospital in Iraq that had the only neurosurgeon in theater and two of the only CAT scans and MRIs. So we got every bad patient, everybody that was bad. Every patient, head injury. Every head injury, like every everybody that was seriously injured, you know, that could make the flight, we got. Uh, and we were in Balad, so we were kind of centrally located, you know, close enough to Baghdad to get everything from there, Mosul, everything. And that was the first time where I really had to tell myself, like, numb, just numb yourself, just put up a, a concrete wall in front of your soul, because you don't want to let the stuff in, uh, and it really was, like, not only seeing people come in all day, but having mortars, they called it Mortaritaville, uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> and you could buy shirts there at Balad, like, they had, I went to Mortarita, or my brother went to Mortaritaville, and all I got was a stupid shirt, because <clears throat> it used to be Saddam's Air Force Academy, so there were people, you know, what are we doing when we were in the military? We invaded, we went into the bases, kicked everybody out, said, you're no longer in the military, go. Well, so we had all these guys that hated us, that were our enemy, that went right out into that city that knew every inch of that Air Force Academy. So we get mortared all the time, you know, and they had Siege of Soda was there, they had uh, like a lot of big planes that they wanted to hit, all this other stuff. So you get mortared all day every day you know ramadan was the end of that deployment the last week was ramadan and we just i mean mortared all damn day long and you're seeing these people come in you know an infantry platoon gets ambushed and we would have guys that were, you know 18 year old privates coming in dead you know on the helicopter you knew they were dead the second they came through the doors um and it really was i just had to <clears throat> it was the first time i had to tell myself just don't let any of this stuff in. So, and it really was. I, like, it changed me a lot when I got home. And I think it's where I built, maybe not built the wall, but added a couple bricks, you know? Definitely a couple more bricks in the wall. And uh, after that, I got back and had a little bit of time. And in the book, I call it where the whirlwind begins, because I think Iraq was the first one where it just started going, just gone constantly. And I went from Iraq to like Scotland for a training mission, or Florida for a training mission, and then Scotland for a training mission, and then straight to Africa, uh, which is another amazing experience. Uh, just it, it's what made me know I wanted to go into medicine. But that's what I wanted to do. Uh, a special forces medic either wants to go into being a shooter and go you know to Delta or go do one of the other things we don't talk about or or going to medicine, or going to intelligence, because it's just what the medics are very heavy on. They're very cerebral guys. But at going to Africa, let me know I wanted to go to medicine. That's wholeheartedly what I wanted to do. What What was the experience in Africa, and where, where were you? We were in Niger. Uh, so all the stuff in the news right now, it's Niger is between Mali and Libya. So it's right there. I mean, everything crazy going on in Africa is right there in North Africa right now. It's trans Sahel which means it's right under the sahara desert mm-hmm. uh and it's the on the d o d on the De- department of Defense list of the fifty two countries in the world that's the poorest uh so you don't have like failed states like- Af- Afghanistan mm-hmm. but every actual country it's the poorest of the poorest of the poor and we were there to go bring medicine like basically go help we got uh, so it wasn't fighting necessarily. No, we we're doing some intelligence stuff. Uh, just kind of seeing what was going on and looking for. Uh, it's a it's a well known fact that there are a lot of terrorist training camps in the Sahara uh, because you get a lot of those countries like Nigeria, Niger, Mali, that whole area where the government's known to be corrupt. You know, and somebody can basically go in and say, "Here's some money. Uh, we don't exist." You know, and Americans look at the world in terms of America. And don't realize there's a lot of places you can go and completely wipe off the grid, like here you need your debit card or a driver's license or something you're on a camera or something like that. There's a lot of places in the world where there is no such thing as a driver's license. you know nobody has uh, social security numbers or bank accounts, <clears throat> and that's what a lot of these places are. People can go just just disappear, and so that's kind of what we have to do there. We gotta find where these guys are and figure everything out so That's always an underlying theme, you know, in in that area. But for us the main thing was to basically hearts and minds. You know, go out there and go to the villages that had never seen doctors before and we brought six medics and a a surgeon um and a couple of her medics. She was like a special operations unit in the Air Force. And we just went out to a bunch of different villages and, and brought medicine. And that was it. We just set up clinics. And all day, sun up to sundown, just treat as many people as we could. We would go into the center of town and hire cooks and buy like goats and beans and rice and whatever we could find, and cook for everybody that came to the clinic. You know, we teach them how to how to uh, clean their water. You know, how to take care of their kids. We give them infant formula for the kids that were malnourished, and just help just help people. That must have felt amazing. It it was it it you know. And after I think after the Iraq thing, it was what I needed. You know, it helped me. It changed me, that's for sure. I mean, it, it really changed me. It opened up something I didn't know that I had, uh, but it was what I needed. <clears throat> did did do you feel like it brought some of the bricks down that had been put up? Um, uh, maybe. I mean, because at the same time, you know, I talk about not trusting people, mm-hmm. but you would see, you know, it's a big thing. And in, in Africa is a hugely different culture than America, uh, and so I would see things again that would make me just. Hate people or lose faith in humanity, where you see you know uh, um, Africa Niger especially you know is uh was kind of raised on this hunter gatherer culture. Women stayed home all day and nurtured the kids. The men would go out and hunt and bring home dinner. well, there's nothing to hunt anymore, so the men don't go get dinner. it's a welfare state they don't produce anything, they don't do anything, so the men are no longer hunting and bringing home dinner, but they still have that i'm the man mentality. So we would set up these clinics that have, you know, people would stay in line for three days and you'd have the women standing in line throughout the sun. You know, when people say hot, like there's Africa hot. It really was. I mean, just sweltering heat. Make the women stand in line holding, you know, two or three kids the whole time. And the men would just go sit under a tree and make the women sit in line. And then when the women got to the front of the line, they would grab the women and throw them out and the men would go. And so we had to find like our own way to counteract that from happening, you know, draw stuff on their hands and then you can't get in if you don't have this thing on your hand, just different little things, but stuff like that kind of helped me, you know, it wasn't all sunshine. You know, I saw stuff like that and just went, ah, god, this is people Do they do Mm-mm. uh female genitalia mutilation? Not there. there? Not in Niger, uh, not that we saw. Uh, I think that happens a lot Further south, like Equatorial Africa, mm-hmm. uh, but not so much up there in the north where we were. But I've heard of that. That's uh, that's horrible. But it is. It's people think of the world in American terms. Like Americans like to think of, of that everybody is American and we have the same ideology. But they're not. I mean, there are a lot of these countries where women are lower than dirt, and people don't get that. Like people have trouble understanding that, but like in Afghanistan, we saw guys that would have five wives, can't afford to feed one, but they'd be walking away from market, you know, holding a cow or, or goat or whatever, their prized possession and making the five women walk 10 feet behind him because they're lower than him. The cow can walk with him or the goat can work with him, but the women aren't of high enough stature to walk with him oh, wow. through the market. And it's just, that's just the way they are. Like they don't bat an eye to stuff like that it's it's just a cultural thing and it's nuts it's just the way they are (laughs) and then you think
0: about wanting to try to bring democracy to to a country like that and I know you can't think in the short term uh, uh, about things like that because why would you even waste your time Mm -hmm. trying
1: to bring the idea that everybody's equal but we're trying and that's that's the crazy thing, is we're trying to, you, you know? Are you cynical about that? Or are you hopeful about that?
0: What very you're... cynical. Yeah.
1: Very, very cynical, because we're not going about it the right way. Uh, there's a great thing on YouTube, and I can't remember the name of it. A friend of mine shared it with me. But there's this old, uh, highly regarded you know, mind from Afghanistan that got out of Afghanistan. He was dying in a hospital somewhere in the Middle East, and he gave this long speech from his deathbed and basically said... You want to save Afghanistan? It's the same thing we've needed our entire life: agriculture and education. That's it, because every every uh, murderous despot that the world has ever had has followed the same blueprint. Everyone from Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge down to Stalin and Hitler and and all the the leaders that have done in Africa. You take away the education, you kill the educated. You know, get rid of the teachers and just destroy the educational system. take away their arms, that's one of the big ones, and you destroy their agriculture. So people can't subsist on their own anymore. They need the government to give them whatever they're going to give. They don't have arms to defend themselves against the government, and there's nobody smart enough to run the government. When we took out Saddam, took out all of his leaders, nobody was left to run the country. Same thing in Afghanistan. When you kick out the only people in the country left that know how to read, write, run a government, do simple math, like run electrical grids... There is nobody left there, and that's the thing that Afghanistan needs: intelligent people, or more than one group of people. They need a country full of people that can all, you know, we're, we're having elections now, but they're electing people that none of them really are qualified to run the country because we got rid of all the people that were. They were all people that we didn't like, you know, and and that's what they need: a country of intelligent people that can self-sustain and have like a common theme of loving their own government. And that's why I'm cynical. Unless, unless we do that, unless we sh- help them, you know, it, it would be terraforming at this point because that country has been destroyed for centuries. You know, people have, it's just such a strategic route that everybody's been dominating and destroying that place. If we would actually terraform and help them grow rice and grow agriculture. What was what the word that you used? Terraforming? Terraforming? Yeah, terraforming. It's where you go in- Spell that um, for our transcriber. T E R R A. Space, F O R M I N G. And it's where you go into an area that is, you know, it's naturally a desert or, you know, barren with rocks or whatever it is, and you turn it into an agricultural land. Like you bring in water, you divert water and bring in water, you plant seeds, you know, change the soil, you know, bring in extra soil or whatever you're going to do to change it from barren desert and rock to actually hospitable land. And it can be done. It takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. And that's the unfortunate thing. We're putting a lot of money. Can't, you, ju- to have can't to you just to. put a cheesecake factory in there? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's maybe that's another part of my <laughs> cynicalism, is that is that, like, is have we done it right? You know, Americans are obese and, and dying at alarming rates because we have Burger Kings on every corner and people watch TV all day instead of going out and talking and playing in the park. Is that what we want to do the rest of the world? I know that's what, you know, McDonald's and, and Burger King CEOs want to do the rest of the world, but... We're going to take a break right there and bring
0: read you read you some ad copy from our sponsor Burger King and McDonald's. No. Our uh, our sponsor is uh as you've heard the last couple of weeks the uh, the nice peeper, uh, peeper? <laughs> nice people at hover.com. Are you looking to register a new domain name? Maybe you want, maybe you want to get peeper.com. Uh would you like to do it hassle-free? Would you like to do it for a small fee? The domain registration and email management site, Hover, that's spelled H-O-V-E-R, believes that everyone should have full control of their online identity. Hover takes all the hassle and friction out of owning and managing domain names with their clean, powerful, easy-to-use tools. With Hover, you'll avoid the heavy-handed upselling and aggressive cross-selling that other companies subject you to. Features like Whois privacy, URL forwarding, and subdomains are included in your domain registration, so you don't have to worry about extra charges. And, Hover only offers services that enhance the domain name experience. Along with your choice of uh, domain, you can create a simple, memorable email address, no more impersonal webmail addresses that are impossible to recall. So hook up with Hover for a low-cost, completely stress-free registration process. It takes only seconds to secure your corner of the internet and start using your account. Once you're good to go, Hover offers no hold, no wait, and no transfer phone and online support and tutorials. You get to talk to actual people who have actual answers. Can you believe that? So head on over to www.hover.com mental to start enjoying the benefits of Hover today. You'll get 10% off your entire purchase with the URL. That's 10% off at www.hover.com slash mental. Plus, if you go to that web address, the one with the slash mental, they'll know that you're uh, listeners of mine, and uh, they'll know that you're supporting my sponsor. So uh, thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting our sponsor, Hover. And now back to uh, the interview with Robert. You know, I heard... <laughs> A story one time, this this woman, and I think I've told this on the podcast before, but this woman worked in the theater, and <clears throat> she loved Mother Teresa, and Mother Teresa was in New York, and she wanted to meet her, so she like camped outside the hotel she knew Mother Teresa was staying in, and when Mother Teresa came walking out of the doors, this woman came up to her and said, I want to come to K- Calcutta with you i want i want to work with the poor mother teresa said what do you do here and she said i it's meaningless you know i work for um you know a theater company we put we put plays on i want to do something meaningful and she said stay here stay in america and do that because uh india there's a famine of food but in america there's a famine of the spirit yeah and uh, I thought, wow, that, that is so observant. And I think it's why so many people feel an emptiness in their lives that they can't put their finger on because the cult in America tells you that if you acquire enough stuff, you will be okay. You will feel peace. You will feel all right. Yeah. And it's crazy making. It's crazy making because nobody tells our kids that there's this third element to your life. You, you know, there's the physical element, there's the mental element, and then there's the spiritual element. And by spiritual, nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with God. Just in terms of your your life force, that thing inside you that that is that you felt change when you went mm-hmm. to when you went to Iraq. What can you talk about? How you either felt more engaged with your spirit or less engaged with your spirit from your your tours, and and how you struggle to
1: keep your spirit up. Uh, I I went in very religious. Uh, I was I was extremely religious uh, when I went in to the point where I was raised Southern Baptist in Texas. That's pretty much right mm-hmm. where you are, and um, I didn't think it was. Enough, so I dabbled in going Catholic when I was in the army. You know, that's you, you go to a uh, mass wasn't long enough for you, was yeah, it? it wasn't quite <laughs> enough. I just because I, I really felt like a deep spiritual calling, uh, and that was my thing. Like, I didn't eat any meat on Fridays, and I still do that. You know, I, I just had a lot of things where for me, a lot of uh, I think nothing good comes without sacrifice, you know what I mean? You have to kind of set your own boundaries, and you have to give up things to get things, that's delayed gratification. It's what's, I think it's a huge requirement for real success in anything spiritual, physical, anything. Um, but there was something about, you know, Iraq probably started, and then Afghanistan <clears throat> just lost all faith, just completely lost it. And it was this idea where I was on, I can't remember which one, but I was on a mission, and I just remember being outside of a house ready to go inside and kill everybody in the name of my God. And I knew everybody in that house was waiting to kill me in the name of their God. And that realization just shook my entire foundation of faith. And I just said, this is not, you know, if there is a God, he doesn't want this. Yet this is all done in his name, and if everything they've said about it is true, then he created us in his own image. If he's omnipotent and omnipresent, and omniscient, then he he created us knowing this would happen, created us in his own image, like all these different dogmas kind of raced through my brain in an instant. And I went, no, no, I don't think so. And I just lost it. I just lost all faith. And uh, I'm starting to get... What what happened then that night? uh, I can't remember which mission it was from, but it was one of, I mean... (laughs) We were in people's houses every other night, you know, so it's it's one of any number of them. What's it like going into searching a house, a dark house? It's, it's again, you know, the first couple times you do it, it's terrifying, but after a while it just becomes... You know, like anybody at any job, you know, just flipping the burger or doing whatever, but... Dude, I shit my pants watching it on the Discovery Channel. I can't imagine <laughs> what it's
0: like being that first guy through the door, walking into a room that could be booby-trapped, Yeah,
1: you, you know, fighting people that are willing to, to die. Yeah. Ah, that's... Well, and it really wears on you after a while, because... One of the big differences between uh, a team of an ODA, a team of Green Berets, and an infantry battalion or squad or company or whatever it is, is that we run our own intelligence. You know, so uh, in the infantry, you have somebody from higher always says, "Here's your mission. Here's who you need to take. Here's when you need to do it. Here's what you need to bring. Here's where you need to be. Here's how you're going to get there." In ODA, we tell our hire what we're going to do. You know, it's our job. We go to an area, and it's our job to stabilize that area or get the bad guys or whatever our mission is. So we would have these missions where we would you know, go fishing. Basically, you, you have a lineup of all the people in your area from little fish to big fish. And you know you're not going to find the big fish because they have a lot of money. They're very smart. They sleep in a different bed every night. you know, mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. They're off the, off the grid. They have people everywhere looking out for them. But we would start off a night and just go get the little fish. And we would get the little fish and just you know, interrogate them on the spot. You can do on the field inter- or in the field interrogation. Mm-hmm. Get any intel you can from their house. You know, tie them up, put them in the back of a truck, and then whatever intel you got from that house would lead you to another house. Go to another house and just go for seventy-two hours, just from house to house to house to house, until you either hit the end of it, you get the big fish that you wanted, or you're done, whatever you're doing. And after that,
0: did you have Afghani's with you, or did you guys speak Afghani?
1: Yeah, we have. Uh, so Green Berets you know, they call us force multipliers. We'll basically train a little unit of our own commandos, and we'll just train them with all of our tactics, with our weapons and all that stuff, and and we bring them with us wherever we go, and we had interpreters as well. So, were you ever afraid they were going to turn on you? Yeah, we had guys that straight up said, we used to be Taliban, but you pay better. So, I mean, that's just, you know, and there's certain intelligence games that you can play to determine, like, if you think there's somebody batting for the other side uh, in one of your commandos, you know, you never tell them exactly where you're going to do a mission because chances are they have a brother or a cousin or something in that village, but you have certain pieces of intelligence. You know, if you if you, if you you know somebody's telling the bad guys anything about where you're going or where you're doing, you break it down. If you can narrow it down from 20 to like five guys, then you break everybody up into five. You tell each group something different about what you're going to do and you know each one of those will have some intended consequence. You know, if I tell these guys we're going here at this time, then somebody's going to be there at that time waiting to ambush us. And so you can just play little games like that and see if somebody really is working for you or against you. But it, it is—it's—it's it's, it's a terrifying fact that you're always just kind of waiting. <laughs> <laughs> when you would interrogate people,
0: what did it feel like emotionally to you when you would? That you would get close to that line or that line would be crossed about
1: you know what should be was that line ever crossed we would switch off you know because once you get too hot you lose I mean you just would lose any ability to get anything especially in that situation where it's time is of the essence like you're Mm -hmm. in a village you're in this guy's house in a village you can't just sit there for five hours and you know do the old uh, CSI Miami or NYPD Blue walking around a desk and mm-hmm. you know good cop bad cop. You don't have time for that. Uh, so we do. You know if, if it's getting too hot or if you're getting nowhere, you switch up. You know and we have uh, an ODA has intelligence people attached to it. You know so we have different agency people with us. You know on, on the bigger missions that we'll go on when we know we need like a high level interrogator with us, and they're very good at what they do. Very good at what they do. I guess what I'm asking is, did you ever see torture? No. I I know movies like to portray it a lot, uh, but for us on the ground level, like needing on-the-ground intelligence right there, no. I mean, we have our guys, we have our intelligence guys, we have our Afghanis, we have our interpreters. uh, And a lot of those guys, you know, a a, a high-level interpreter is paid very well to not only be to not only speak the language, but to be a psychologist in in, in a bit of a uh, in a in a kind of an, a manner, and to be able to tell you, hey, that guy's lying, you know, immediately. Just this guy's full of it. You know, and that's that's when of your big things. That's when you know, okay, get the professional in here and they'll take care of it.
0: So can you talk about was it was there, are there any anything else to the kind of the arc of uh you talked about losing your your faith. Um was it did you lose faith in humanity
1: and the idea that there's a God what what did what did that leave you with I never lost my faith that there is a God uh, I lost sight of what his name is I believe he's there I believe in a higher being uh, that's for sure people call me a deist I guess I'm a deist now that's what I am too yeah because yeah. I mm-hmm. believe he's there but uh, that's my idea so I, I'm a Freemason I have a very kind of esoteric ideas about religion and spirituality and all that. But uh, my idea is that there was an original truth somewhere because in Afghanistan, especially in Africa and, and Iraq and all these different places where you'd have Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, like all atheists, everybody. You notice everybody celebrates their holidays at the same time of year. Everybody does pretty much the same thing when they pray or how they pray or what they wear when they pray or what they have to do or things like that. There's so many similarities between all the religions. I feel it's like that, um, what do you call it, the telephone game where mm-hmm. you talk to somebody's ear you have one thing and you say it and it goes to him and it goes all the way and it's completely changed by the time it gets back. My belief is that there was an original truth somewhere, somehow, humanity is connected to God or some deity or whatever it is but different people, you know, there was probably an original small circle of people that had this original truth at the beginning, and then they all went, oh, wow, I could, I could use this to my advantage. <laughs> and everybody went, you know, sh- it kind of went off in five different directions, and they went, okay, well, we can't all say the same thing. So I'm going to say this, and you're going to say that, and you're going to say that, and you're going to say that. And at some point, those people were long gone. And they didn't tell the next generation that, "Hey, by the way, we're friends with these people. You know we're just all doing this together. Mm-hmm. I think eventually that part of it got lost, and now we're killing each other. In the name of religion, you know, love your brother, but don't love that guy because he's mm-hmm. not your brother and he's going to hell. That, that doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, I lost my idea. In, I lost my faith in religion. in man. Once man gets a hold of it, man is a dirty little monkey you know man is is envious and jealous and greedy and everything else and god and spirituality is anything but any of those things so i think once you add man to that it just it's like does not compute
0: <laughs> can you talk about ptsd have you do you experience it um you were you were uh actually uh injured in combat can you can you actually first can you talk about that what happened
1: yeah that was uh, in afghanistan uh so towards the uh, a couple months in our deployment we lost uh, our brother pat so it was you know, i'd seen a lot of people die but it was the first one of our brothers that died like one of the guys in our company and i dedicated a whole chapter to him within the book uh his family is extremely supportive they're amazing he has a son uh, I don't know if I want to say his name or not, but they're very, very, very supportive, and, and I, I love his family to death. Uh, and so we had a, an operation called Operation Payback uh, because he he died in this area. Um, Afghanistan was kind of like the Wild West, right, where we would build a base and stabilize that area, you know, and then go, okay, we're cool here. We would go a little bit further into the hornet's nest. And so... One of our ODAs, they, these guys literally went from one stabilized base out into the middle of the desert, into a, like just outside of a village that was, was bad. We knew mm-hmm. it was very bad, and they built a base around them. While these guys basically sat there and held security, they just started putting up HESCO barriers and filling them in with rocks and stuff around them. So this was fob pathfinder. It was called fob pathfinder that forward time, operating base. forward operating base. See, you're getting good. That's <laughs> <laughs> just cuz I watch the discovery <laughs> channel. But yeah, so they they yeah. built this one up and it was, I mean, if you've seen Restrepo, like they were in contact every day, every yeah. single day. And we there's a chapter called Firefight with the Colonel where we went down there just for one of their little like go out in the village and get no firefight, <laughs> like just mm-hmm. just just do it. And then the day after uh, or a couple of days after, they got into a firefight where they lost Pat. And um, so a month after that, we went, you know, they they were still taking fire every day from the same house that whatever rocket came from killed Pat. So we went, nah, we're going to go get them. So the entire company came down and, and we went in and uh, we went to go basically take out the house and whoever was in it and whoever was associated with it and everybody else. Um, and so we went in, and they must have seen that we were coming because we made it all the way into the village and nothing happened. So we start kind of going around and doing our you know, searches of the area, trying to find weapons caches, because there was a lot of bad guys coming out of there. And you know there's got to be ammo, weapons, something around there that's supplying these guys. So we're searching a house and we get a call, You know, there's a, a drone, a predator mm-hmm. overhead. We get a call, there's a bunch of like 70 to 80 fighters massing just, you know, two kilometers down the road. So every team was in like a different part of the village and our team was closest and so our team sergeant went, hey guys, uh, they're all that way, you want to go? And everybody went, yeah. So... <laughs> go towards them. Go get them, yeah. Jesus. So we uh, we all got together in our little thing, you know, call the rest of the teams, hey guys, we're going this way, come meet us when you can. So we just start walking. And uh, we got out into, <clears throat> kind of outside of the village, and we we're walking, you know, through... Now, does 100% of you want to go do this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We wouldn't have been where we were if we didn't want to. You know what I mean? Like... what, What... Describe what that is. Is it payback
0: for something that happened previously? Is it just, I've been handed a mission, and I'm a soldier, and... I want to do this mission. Are you emotionally invested in it? Is it you just want to do your job?
1: Is it that you're pissed at these guys and you want to kill them? What? 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 Is it? It's all of the above. I mean, that's like number one. That's as a as a Green Beret, you never. You always accomplish your mission, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, if you're the last guy standing, you keep going forward, and as long as you have breath in your body, you will accomplish that goddamn mission. Was that honed in in basic training, or was that in you before basic training? A lot of it started in basic training. I mean, inventory, you, you know, there is a lot of bravado that goes into it, and a lot of that just whatever it takes, you're going to do it. But it definitely gets you know it's like natural selection you know special forces uh, that very first stage is called selection it really is this it, it's it, it is natural selection you I know would imagine, <laughs> i would imagine
0: too that, that that is the currency that bonds you to your
1: to your the guys in your in your squad oh yeah i mean it's the only place i've ever been in my life where i can have a group of guys and no matter what in the world I say, if I, I need this to get done or they need to get done, there is no, oh, well, I can't, I'm tired, or I got to take the day off. It's going to happen, period. And it's going to happen exactly like you need it to happen. And that's that's it. I mean, if, if there is a job or a mission, it's going to get done. And it's an amazing thing. And you have this brotherhood of guys that there is nothing like it. There is no bonds that are that tight that I've ever seen anywhere in life where you just... You what People love to say i would take a bullet for you or i'd step on a grenade for you but i had a team of dudes that i knew there was there was no that wasn't like uh, just an expression to them i knew they would do it in an instant you know and we'd still do it for each other
0: is it is it fair to 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 say then that there was uh an element of trust there that that you craved maybe because um Your experience with trust had been so bad before that I I don't know. I mean, just the thought just kind of occurred to me that you must have to implicitly trust Mm -hmm. those guys so much. But the feeling that, because I know the feeling I get when I'm around people that I trust deeply with my secrets and my past, and I know they love me unconditionally, there is a feeling that eases. Any pain from from the past, and I can't imagine how intoxicating that trust must be when literally your lives are in your each other's hands. That must be, even though you're in the middle of
1: combat, that it, mu- it seems like that must be very soothing on some level. It is, and it's it's weird, you know. Like everybody that I've met since my time in the Army and even friends of mine from pre-Army, and I had you know, a group of friends who called the Four Horsemen because we were inseparable. Like, there was just four of us that were always went everywhere. We know all of our deepest and darkest secrets, but everybody else I've ever met, and every once in a while you have to go, hey, this doesn't leave this room. We're just between you and me. But the guys on my team, that you never had to say that. Like, you know, we know each other. Like, there's things that will never leave any anywhere else. It, it's just a full complete trust and, and it's not just with a secret about you know, about something that I did that I shouldn't have been doing, it's, it's also about we're going to go to this village, six of us are going to go this way, you guys go that way we're going to meet up at this point in ten minutes where I know no matter what happens, if I get into trouble those guys are going to be there in ten minutes no matter what, come hell or high water if they're alive, they're going to be there period, I mean there's no questions about it and that, that is. Maybe, I think that might be why I've always craved it. Like, I always I always come to these super tight groups, you know, just very, very, like, brotherhoods, you know, very, very insanely close brotherhoods and, and associations where you are so close you call each other brothers, you know? Like, maybe that is why I've craved that my whole life, because mm-hmm. I have that issue with trust. Well, I could tell you when, when I'm around people that are
0: uh, abuse- Survivors, or had a parent who was similar to the one that kind of um, I have issues with. Um, when I'm feeling really low, there's a comfort from them that that nobody else can give me because I know they have experienced what I've experienced, and I'm not comparing that to combat. Um, but that knowing that somebody knows what it feels like in your bones mm-hmm. is so
1: soothing. Yeah. Especially when it's something you can't always put into words, you know, like that, that, I think that's a part of human nature. You know, you want to share it with somebody, but you don't want to talk about it.
0: And and you feel something genetically, a switch flip in you uh, that so many of us lack in our lives, which is a sense of purpose, a sense of something larger than yourself that you're Mm -hmm. connected to that all of a sudden the universe kind of makes, makes sense. Um, at least for me, that's that's how it feels. I, I have no idea what it would be like to be to be in combat, but I'm just kind of, I'm trying to picture what it would feel like to be one of one of you guys in that to walk towards seventy guys that want to kill you. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So I'm I'm sorry for kind of uh, <laughs> digressing, but. Um, uh, so let's go back to the... So you're walking towards these, yes, these we, guys. Yes,
1: we walked towards it, and I remember uh, we we got to this part of the village where there's just an opening, and there was like a little courtyard, and there was a house. And I remember looking at the house and going, why that house doesn't look right? It was like, it was like a pretty modern, nice-looking house for the middle of a village in, in bumfuck Afghanistan. And then the machine gun opened up, and it was this, you know, what you call a dushka, which is like a heavy, like bigger than the rambo sized machine gun. you got to put it on things. And, and I remember seeing the smoke before I heard anything, and everybody just, get down. And half our team were separated. So half the team was already in the courtyard. The other half were back here. And I had uh, a 203 grenade launcher on the bottom of my rifle. And uh, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine, with, with my team sergeant, or my former team sergeant, saying that most guys that get into a firefight forget they even have that. You know, it's a grenade launcher on the bottom of your rifle. It's an awesome tool to have if you need it because, you know, a mortar you shoot up and there's a lot of guessing on if you're gonna hit the mm. right place. And throwing a grenade isn't always great. But with one of those two of threes on the bottom of your rifle, I mean, I I used to shoot with it so much I was surgical with that thing. I could get anywhere. And I immediately went, holy shit, I got a 203. We a firefight. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I shot it right at the, at the thing and it blew up at the wall like right next to the machine gun guy. And uh, it was weird because it was this like, kind of forgot for a second that I was in a firefight and it felt like it was a video game. Like, yeah, Pac-Man just ate the mm-hmm. you know fruit or whatever. Um, but then I kind of look around and, and I remember somebody started screaming uh What the fuck was that? And I went. That was me. I got him. That was that was my two hundred three. And then fire, just bullets everywhere, from from the enemy. Uh, from all the way around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the way around. So uh, a couple of the guys on my on my team, like I was trying to decide, do I go behind the wall, or do I go to the courtyard? And just as I'm starting to run to go join the rest of my team, the other two guys behind me run right in front of me, and they go they go over there. So. It's funny because you talk about that, and it's the intro, and and there's a book called Operation, or there's a chapter called Operation Payback in the book. But you you look at it, and like in hindsight, I went, I knew we were probably gonna die. Like I knew we were outnumbered, but if my guys were gonna die, then I was gonna die. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't gonna be the only asshole to walk away from that. <laughs> like I, I was gonna go, you know, I was gonna go there. You know, I was gonna go if I could help them. I was gonna help them. If if we all died, we all died. Um, but that was it, so we were there. we are in the middle of the firefight, and uh time is completely out the window. There is no such thing as time when you're in that and we uh I mean we were in it I, I know for a little while uh, because i we had gone through exchanging fire with with several groups of people and and at one point, my captain and I were right next to each other against a wall, and the wall just exploded, just exploded right between us and I'm just knocked out. I just I remembered the wall exploding, and then that was it. Uh, And I had like a dream about my wife, just crazy, like out of a movie, weird experience. One of those things where a dream's probably five seconds, and it feels like it's two hours. You know, you probably just fall asleep at your desk real quick. And was Michael Caine in it? (laughs) No, this thankfully (laughs) this is just her. (laughs) Uh, But I remember waking up and like being discombobulated and seeing. Sky and everything, and just looking at beautiful blue. I mean, Afghanistan's a beautiful country. Uh, And then I just saw tracers flying over my field of view, and I kind of woke up and realized where I was, and uh, I saw my team, where they were. I had been knocked out into, like, a little alleyway, and I uh, scurried back behind the wall as quickly as I could, and my captain's still unconscious, and I saw blood. And I was a medic, so there's just ingrained in my brain, there's TCCC uh, tactical combat casualty care, stuff that you start doing when somebody's hit. So I start trying to find where he's hit, going over him, and I'm seeing all this blood all over him, like, what the, what's going on? And uh, he wakes up, and he goes, I'm fine, get back, they're shooting at us, get back over there. So he gets up, and he starts returning fire. I go back over to the corner and pull security, and my arm is just hurting, just hurts. But I remember the wall exploded, and I was like, it probably just hit me and hurt, whatever. Uh, and so we still, you know, exchanging fire back and forth, back and forth. And I looked down, and I had gloves on. I have shooting gloves on, and my left glove is like a balloon, just full of red liquid. And I looked down, and there's just my whole right side is just red, just from blood. And I go, uh, sir, hey, sir, I need some help. I need your help over here. So my captain came over, and... We had blowout kits in, in, our, in our shoulder pockets that we kept, and he pulls them out and starts taking care of my arm, and other guys pop up, so I got to pull my arm out of his arm and, and start shooting back and, and doing all this, you know, in the middle of a firefight, returning fire. And he, got it, he finally got it dressed. Uh, our QRF showed up, which is quick reaction force. They're like guys that were staged at our base with trucks and big 50-cal machine guns just in case we got into trouble. So they showed up. They start just leveling everything, uh, we had A-10s that finally came on station and started doing gun runs. And just mm-hmm. once that starts happening, they say, okay, you guys get out of there or, or you're not going to last. You're not going to be in this world for very long. And finally, all the other teams started to kind of make their way to us and mm-hmm. right up fire. So we kind of got out of there, made our way all the way back, and uh, just watched the place get leveled. Just absolutely leveled. And that was it. That was Operation Payback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was... It was a crazy day.
0: And so you got a purple heart for that? Yeah,
1: we got a purple heart for that one. It was, uh, it's funny because. So, what was it? It was a shoulder injury? Yeah, I still have. uh, We looked at it the next day. You know, I got all the medics together and we looked at it because you can see it's like a perfect circle. So, we think it's a bullet. Mm -hmm. I know there's shrapnel in my shoulder, but whatever it is, it's still in here. You can feel the point of it. It's actually still in here. I've been to four or five orthopedic surgeons trying to get it out. Nobody will touch it uh, because they don't know exactly where it is. There's a nerve that runs right here that they don't want to risk hitting. Mm -hmm. So they just live with it. So it's in there. The pieces of my shoulder are really, you know, a bunch of small specks Mm -hmm. of metal. uh, But this is a, slug you know it's, it's something in there do you go off when you go through airport security I have not all of them some of yeah. them it's just the ones that are really really finely tuned we had metal detectors like for landmine detectors mm-hmm. on our team and I used to make the guys like test it on my <laughs> own uh, but I could feel it you know I'm stubborn as hell and a little probably masochistic and so I stopped working out for a while because it was just hurts it just hurts so bad uh, but then I started getting pretty fat because I'm an eater I like eating yeah. you know and uh, I'm a stress eater uh, so I just I eat and I went okay. Well, I'm not going to get fat, so I just started working out again. Just sounds mm-hmm. like shit all the time. <laughs> I can't stop working out.
0: Are there any other seminal seminal moments from your military?
1: Uh, well, that was Afghanistan. Um, when I got back from Afghanistan, we went. I was moved from Germany back to Colorado, which is where 10th Maine is, which is like the larger unit of 10th Special Forces Group. And I went immediately back to Iraq. Like I had enough time to buy a condo, propose to Cindy on a plane right back to Iraq. That was just much more of the same, except it's hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Iraq's a lot hotter. Uh, but it was just the same thing over and over and over. And it was getting back from Iraq when I knew I was getting out of the Army. Uh, that's when I finally slowed down and when it started really getting rough, like the PTSD and just... Not being able to sleep, just just being rough. That's what Cindy, my wife, likes to say, just rough. Just really rough.
0: <laughs> how does this PTSD, when did it start? How does it present itself?
1: It exhibits in everybody a little bit differently. Uh, and that's why they have such a hard time classifying it, because you can't look at people and go, oh, you got PTSD, you know? And uh, a lot of guys don't want to come forward, uh, because there are a lot of issues now. That's a big argument of the Second Amendment thing. People are saying... The VA is going to release any records for anybody that has PTSD, and there is rumor that they'll label anybody that's got combat experience as a PTSD veteran and, and take away their weapons and not allow them to have guns. A lot of guys hear that and go, "Well, then f- I'm never going to come forward," you know, and that compounds the situation. You get guys, any special operations guy has a TS clearance. I had a TS-SCI clearance. You don't What's want to top secret. Uh, secretive, compartmentalized information. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> when you get like a top secret clearance, everybody thinks, "Oh, I've got a top secret clearance. I'm going to go find out who killed JFK, or you know, mm-hmm. where the aliens are, and all that good stuff." Well, that's where the SCI comes in. Uh, compartmentalized information means you can be read on to anything. TSSCI is like the highest level. It means at that point, you can be read on to anything that there is in the world of intelligence, but it's compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So, just because you have TS. SCI doesn't mean everybody, it's a need to know. If you need to know about this, they will read you onto this and, and you can get right in. Well, if you have you know any kind of like alcohol-related incident, drugs, money, any of these issues, they'll strip that away. PTSD is one of them. If you go get mental health counseling, they'll take away your TSSCI. If you don't have that, you can't operate in special operations. So if you get a guy that's been in the Army or Navy for 12 years, 15 years, worked up to wherever they are they're not going to risk losing that because if they lose that and they go out of special operations, they go to the needs of the Army or the Navy and once you've been in special ops for five or ten years, you can't exist in the military <laughs> anymore because you cannot wear your uniform right. You have to have long hair. You're just not... You don't play play well like that anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that that's a big issue. You know, people don't... It exhibits differently. Some people have the... The one common theme is sleep. Um... Everybody that I know that has combat experience just can't sleep, you know. And for me it started on the blood when I went to Iraq the first time, just waiting for mortars all the day, all day, all hours of the night, just lose that ability to sleep cuz you're just waiting at the drop of a hat to get up and hit a bunker, you know, so the mortars mm-hmm. don't don't land on you or when you get to Iraq or Afghanistan uh, on combat missions like you're sleeping literally with a loaded Ready rifle, pistol, ammo, uh, body armor, right next to your bed, because we get those. You know, we have intelligence sources throughout a village. If you get a call, hey, this guy's at this shop, you got to go now. Go get him because that guy might not surface again. So just being always willing, just go, 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 the job of a hat. Um, it just, I just don't sleep. I just don't sleep. I, I found, you know, for a couple of years, I was taking like this zinc magnesium acetate zma and benadryl and melatonin and a couple glasses of wine just to knock myself out i i found this thing uh a new supplement that's helping me actually it's it's the only one i've had that has allowed me to sleep and actually dream not just like Mm -hmm. knock myself out so for the last two weeks i've been actually sleeping again which is crazy for me because i wake up actually kind of happy and relaxed and rested. What's the supplement? It's called New Mood. Uh, On it makes it. It's got 5-HTP and like chamomile in it. It's made to relax you, Mm -hmm. um, but it's the only thing I've ever taken that I can actually sleep. That's great. It's organic, too. Yeah, it's organic. It's a naturally... 5-HTP is something that's naturally made in your brain. Uh, It's just a natural enzyme, and I think that's what's good. It's non-narcotic. It's not like Benadryl where you wake up hungover. You know, and it's not like... That was a big problem when I first got back from Iraq. Was you know drinking a, a bottle of vodka a night to go to sleep, just because I could not stop fidgeting. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't get myself into bed. I couldn't lay down. Wow. I couldn't relax. And I just drank, just drank until I was out. But then you're in the army, so you wake up and go run five miles, and that's the best hangover cure I've ever heard of. Like there is no. Oh, I'm not going to run today. I feel like shit. You have to go run. There is no choice. Because you've got a team of guys that are waiting for you, and they're going to come pull your ass out of bed if you're not there. So it's that's it. I mean, you might wake up a little sluggish, but at at, at mile five, if you're still moving, you're not hungover anymore. <laughs> wow. So that's where a lot of that, you know, that's one of the big things they talk about with the issues with combat vets coming back drinking heavily. I know from my experience, that was it. You know, and there's this uh, joke I heard when I was a kid it's not a T-shirt or something. You know, I don't drink to get drunk. I drink to stop the voices in my head. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's not, I mean, PTSD doesn't put voices in your head, but it really is to kind of settle your own demons. Like, just to calm down. What are the biggest demons that
0: you feel like you have from from combat? Is it an image of something you saw that you can't get out of your head? Is it something that you did that
1: that you're not okay with? What 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 is it? I had that uh, the same dream about you know, operation paper the day that I got shot for a long time uh, when I wrote love me when I'm gone I actually wrote it all out of order and that was the first chapter I wrote because it was so vivid in my brain like I remembered the way the dirt smelled the way my boots felt the way everything was you know I mean I and I just watched it over and over and over but it was weird because I watched it from a bird's eye view and not from my point of view I, I dreamed it over. Over. Uh, There's a kid that I talked about that I saw in Balad that, you know, 17, half years, maybe just over 18, that was dead the second he came in. And he had... American <coughs> or... American, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just pale, you know, like a... You see enough and you can see it. You know a dead person the second you see him, mm-hmm. You just know they're dead. Uh, but the thing about him like nobody dies in a helicopter in the military because a, a doctor has to be there to call it flight surgeons and medics aren't doctors so somebody on the ground has, has to pronounce them dead so they would all come into the ER you got to grab their hand, feel a pulse no pulse, go to grab this kid's hand try and find somewhere, start an IV and get a pulse and he's just got army right here, just like two cross rifles and army tattooed on his forearm you look at his uh, dog tags and he's just like Eighteen years in a month or two months. I did the math. Just probably one of the kids that got a waiver to go to basic training directly out of high school wasn't old enough yet, but your parents can sign a waiver. Mm-hmm. Probably died in the first firefight he got. He got into. You know, like I, that haunted me for a long time, long time. Um, but besides that, it's just like a super vigilance. Like I still, if we go to a restaurant, uh, I cannot have my back to a door. Cannot. So my wife knows, like, whenever we go, she just makes that her seat and, you know, finds wherever I can be comfortable. Other little things, uh, everybody that I know that's been in in a combat zone, it, it's probably the healthiest thing you possibly do. Everybody comes back and starts growing their own vegetables, growing their own foods, like not stock stockpiling, dry, just emergency stuff, uh, because we've all seen what happens like once you've been in a war zone you never want to live in a war zone uh and so we basically keep like emergency supplies just in case something happens here um, so that's a big part of my my thing is like having escape plans like always being ready in case something happens because i have a family you know so doing whatever it would take to protect my family you know that's a that's a big part of mine uh, crowds. I don't like crowds. <laughs> What's Fourth That's- of July like? Hearing <clears throat> all the fireworks. Uh, the first time, it was very unsettling. My parents live in Florida on the water. The town that they live in has a huge Fourth of July ceremony. Uh, one of those things where they have a barge out in the water and they mm-hmm. they do all the fireworks. And the first time, it freaked me out. Freaked me out a lot. Um, but man, I did what I was doing at that point, just drank a lot to kind of numb myself out. And uh, now it's okay as long as I know, <laughs> as long as I know they're happening. But it does, I get pretty misty. You know, I mean, that's, I was patriotic before I went. Uh, I'm just from a very conservative military family, grew up in Texas. Like, I'm I'm very, very patriotic. Um, but that's one thing. I hear the Star Spangled Banner or I watch fireworks or see, like, a parade on the 4th of July, and I get choked up. Like, I really, it does. Seeing, like, the guys that go to um, airports and welcome home soldiers, like that, I get pretty choked up. Just knowing that the public is kind of behind that, you know, and and, and seeing that, and and it's a validation. That, that book on killing talks about it a lot, about soldiers needing that validation when they get home. That's what ribbons and medals are. It's a validation that I know I just did something horrible inside of my mind, but I get a shiny ribbon. Cool. Okay, so that I me mean, it's okay. That means what I did was okay. You're, you're, you're rewarding me for doing it. Validation, okay. And that's what screwed up the, the Vietnam guys so bad it was they got home, and their ribbons were stolen off their uniforms. They got spit on. You know, I talked to a lot of guys. Uh, our photographer at our wedding, Joe Buesink, was a... Sniper, I think in Vietnam, and he told us the story, because we had a full-blown military wedding. And uh, all my all my guys were there in our, you know, sword bears, all uniforms, the whole nine yards. And at the rehearsal dinner, he told us, you know, I came home the first day getting off the airplane, somebody spit on my uniform, I took it off and never put it back on. And that's, you know, you come home from war and doing these things, and you have that, you have people go, not only you know are you dealing with these demons inside of your own mind but i think you're a piece of shit and spitting on you you know i'm as you say that i think of all the emails that i've gotten from people who
0: were sexually abused by a parent or a caretaker and they go to that other parent or caretaker and that person tells them that they're a liar
1: yeah that's... and i'm like
0: i sometimes i think that second injury is is almost worse than than the first one.
1: Yeah. When you go to the only person in the world you can trust and they don't trust you. What does that tell you? Yeah. It's that same thing. You've got to look to somebody for validation and if you don't get it, especially when you're young like that, your world just crumbles. You know?
0: And you don't know up from down, left from right. Yeah. You know, you're told that you're wrong. The, the, the thing that you f- feel the most strongly in your body and in your mind, you can't make sense of. I I, I can't imagine what that's what that's got to be, how easy it would be to become trapped in your head after coming home from combat.
1: Yeah. And there are a lot of guys that are, you know, and that's, uh, I had a support unit, like I had Cindy, Cindy's dad had What's been, her acronym? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Forward Operating Base Cindy? Trojan, uh, Trojan 10, or Trojan 6, because yeah. that's like battalion commander, so she's, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, she used to, her, her dad was Taiwanese Special Forces, you know, so- he had his own things. When they were little girls, he used to take them to a playground and make them do PLFs, which is uh, when you go through airborne school, when you jump out of an airplane, a PLF is the way you hit the ground and roll so you don't break your mm-hmm. knees off, you know? So, you know, when you're, you're in airborne school, you do that. You know, you get 10 feet up and you just do it onto the ground. So you get really good at it because when you're jumping from 1,000 feet, you really need to be good at it. But so she had seen him kind of go through his things, and and she knew I was having issues, you know? So... Uh, she brought her dog to live with me because I was in Colorado. She was out here in Los Angeles. She's an actress, and uh, the dog was like my buddy, you know. And so he kind of helped me have something else to do besides drink. <laughs> and um, animals are so great at kind of almost forcing you to be present. Yeah, and just having something to offer you love, and just knowing there's no judgment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just unconditional love. You can't. I mean, there's. There's. You can't beat it. And it causes you to do some introspection, you know, because the the dog can't go, get yourself together, douchebag, you know? (laughs) But you kind of go, that's what you're thinking, isn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it just kind of makes you become better, you know? So how do you feel
0: you're you're at today in terms of being comfortable in your skin and functioning
1: in non-combat society? Uh, It took a, a while to get used to, especially here... Uh, there are. I don't know a lot. I know a couple. I joined a special forces uh, chapter. There's this is thing called the Special Forces Association, uh, which you can join if you've been a Green Beret. And it's just a, a bunch of Green Berets in the area that get together, and you know, once a month they have an association, you have a dinner, and you get to hang out together, and do other things. Can I
0: join if I got a really high score on a first-person shooter game? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ghost it Recon on which game
1: depends, oh, Ghost Recon maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that, Actually, you have to go through quite a bit of, of hoops. It took me a while to join because you have to find a very specific... A DD-14 is like the holy grail once you leave the military. It's like what the Army says, all the schools and ribbons and combat deployments and all that. And so most places you go, that's what they need if they need anything. But the association here needed something else, my tab orders or something. I was like, I never thought I was going to need those again. So I couldn't find them for the longest time. Um but my biggest... I think the thing that's helped me the most is helping other people. You know, I'm a, I'm a spokesman for the USA Cares Veterans Organization. And helping kind of put the word out, You know, helping tell my story and helping them help other vets, because that's a big thing they do is help guys that have PTSD. They remove the financial burdens for them to go get assistance. Uh, I had a guy there was a flight medic. So he was the guy on the helicopter that goes to pick up somebody that just got ambushed or whatever and bring them back to the hospital. He was telling me about stories in Baghdad, one specifically where he got called out. They went out and the guy on the ground said, hey, we've got three, one is done, You know, and made this little Mm -hmm. just done motion, the other two over there. And he said he looked over and saw like a bag over the top of this guy's torso, because that's all it was was the top and the legs were somewhere else. And he's going towards the other two and he sees the bag move. And he goes over and takes the bag off, the dude's alive. He's got a half a body, everyone else had written him off, but he's blinking, looking at him, talking alive. Half a torso, nothing else left. And He got the guy onto the chopper, alive, back to a hospital. And it was the first surviving uh, quadruple amputee from combat, ever. But he's and he got out of the military. He's in college now. He's, he went back to school on the East Coast. The medic or the guy that? The medic. OK. Um, Did the other guy live? He lived. I don't know what state he's in. Uh, I know here I went to a Dodgers game, and I met a guy that was a triple ampu No, he was a quadruple, a triple amputee. Uh, and he was just, I mean, shell shocked beyond belief. But alive, just happy to be alive, got saved by an 18 delta. So a special forces medic saved his life in Baghdad. And uh, he was pretty upbeat for that. But the uh, the medic that I was talking to, um, he's at a school on the East Coast, doesn't have a big VA near him. So there's no real place for him to go get help. There's no place to go get counseling. Like, if you're a guy that's lived through that, you're not going to go to just any shrink that you meet. You want to find a combat vet. I was lucky. I found one of the five or fewer psychologists in the military with combat experience. It's hard to find that. And you just, as a combat vet, you don't want to talk to anybody else. And so that's, I feel my purpose in life with the book, with everything that I'm doing with USA Cares, is kind of help reduce the stigma if I can, help convince guys that they need to go to a VA and get some help. You know, go to one of these small group sessions, get with other vets and talk about things and realize there's a lot of other guys going through these same issues that they're going through. What USA Cares does, is if they don't have a VA there, if they can't afford to go somewhere and get counseling, they'll pay for it. They, you know, That's their their big thing is they help reduce those financial burdens. And by helping raise awareness for PTSD and, and raise money for USA Cares and do everything that I can to kind of help everyone else that's going through what I went through, it helps me go through what I'm going through or what I went through, or, you know, day-to-day life, or, like you said, living in my own skin. Just, I feel if I can help somebody else through the shit that I went through, help them kind of pick themselves up by the coattails, then it's mission success for me. Well, that's beautiful, man. That's, um...
0: That's resilience.
1: You gotta... I mean, that's... And it's that same mentality that, that's kind of pouring over. Like, I could just sit down and cry and lay myself in a puddle and nobody wins. I don't win, my family doesn't win, my brothers don't win. Or I can pick myself up and I can help everybody that I can help. So what's the first step somebody can take that can't pick themselves up? Go to the VA. Uh, There are a lot of different hotlines that you can find. Um, I'm here in Los Angeles, so if somebody is in the Los Angeles area, there's a woman named Leslie Martin uh, she started a phenomenal program here. On Thursdays at 6:30, there's a Substance Abuse Program for combat veterans or veterans, period. And on Tuesdays, there's an OEF OIF just PTSD workshop. Uh, but th- that this is just for combat veterans. Uh, no, it's for any veterans at all. Uh, oh, okay, but this is but this is just for
0: military people. Yeah, this okay. is this
1: is for military. So if you're if you if you are if you're military if you're a combat vet and you're having trouble with mm-hmm. PTSD. Uh, you can call the VA. The, it's the West LA VA here and ask for Leslie Martin. Unfortunately, it's not a, a, a VA wide thing. Uh, they all have their own PTSD programs, but the one here is, is great because they have a former Israeli army psych. Uh, she was like, I don't know what she was, but she was in combat and now she's a psychi- psychologist, psychologist, psychiatrist. But she has a wives' program. So the husbands can come in and we do our thing, and the wives have their own PTSD coping program that they go with. And so everybody kind of wins at the same time. Yeah. So it's, it's phenomenal. Leslie's been doing it for 32 years. Something. It's the longest-running PTSD program in the country. So if you're here in LA, the West LA VA is amazing. If not, there are a lot of PTSD links on there. You can go to usacares.org. Uh, they have links to a, a couple different PTSD help websites you can go to. But the VA is a big one. Uh, a lot of people that get out of the military are terrified of the VA because it's it's a huge bureaucracy. It's a behemoth. And it's nearly impossible to get somebody on the phone. But they really have the best resources out there. And they can point you to the best places in your area to go. So it's it's the best starting point you can have. you just you got to live through that. Please press 1 for this. Mm-hmm. Or please press 3 for that. Um, but if you can make it through that, there's some really good help at the end of the line.
0: Oftentimes that is the biggest hurdle is the, that first week of reaching out for help when yeah. you just you can't even get out of bed. You're so you're so depressed or you're so being around people feels like sandpaper. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would imagine once you get the ball rolling, um it it gets easier because then um you're you're past that first hurdle, which is I'm never going to find anybody to help me, and they're never going to be able to, you know, I'm broken, I'm terminally unique, and I'm beyond help. And those are three of the biggest lies that will keep you stuck. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you can can put those, and I'm not speaking about for, you know, being a combat veteran, I can't imagine what that's like, but um, I do know what it's like to not, you know, be able to function.
1: Well, and PTSD comes in a lot of f- forms, and it's not just from combat. There are a lot of great links out there for civilians with PTSD, and that's the biggest part is go get help, because there are a lot of people that have experiences, can mm-hmm. help you. And now, I mean, I hate to say thanks to the wars, we have helped, but, but they're learning a lot of things about the mm-hmm. human psyche that they never knew before.
0: And and I'd like to add this for anybody that has trouble saying you may or may not have something happen to you that you know is PTSD or worthy talking about it. I, I will say this: if you had an experience in your life where you felt yourself leave your body, there's a pretty good chance. There's a pretty good chance because mm-hmm. every person that I've ever heard from or talked to that where they felt themselves wa- above themselves, looking down, yeah. um, that's some pretty serious shit, mm-hmm. and forget whether or not it compares to somebody else's. What matters is is how it felt to you, yeah. and uh, and you need to process that.
1: Uh, is there an email you can give out if people want to contact you? Uh, the websites, I actually run uh, my websites and my Facebook page, and actually okay. I, I had somebody that heard me on one of the, Corolla or Drew, one of those, and, and left a message on Facebook, and I got back to them the same day, and they went, holy shit, I never expected to hear from you. And I went, yeah. I... I'm very controlling in that way. Like I just, I, I do that. I admin, so I'm the admin on farfromcenter.com, love me when I'm and the Facebook pages for love me when I'm gone and far from centered. So I'm there. Okay. You just throw up a line if you need some help. Uh, the, the the medic that I was talking about heard me on Drew and and contacted me on LinkedIn. I'm out there. I'm on Twitter, Robert P. Lewis. Um, Something good can come from LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's great. I mean, it's a great way I think for people to like find those circles, and that's what it's all about: is connecting with somebody else that has your experiences and 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 realizing you're not alone. You're not the only yeah. one going through this shit. And know?
0: that applies to stuff outside combat experience too. It's the it's been the most soothing, healing. Um, thing and it can actually make life even better than it would be normally because there's there's just a a sense of belonging when you're healing with other people that are kind of walking that walking that path with you um that makes life really deeply um meaningful Mm -hmm. well robert thank you thank you so much for uh for coming on and,
1: and and doing what you
0: do i uh I appreciate it
1: yeah thanks for having me and thanks for helping me to help you know get the kind of word out to people if anybody's listening and they are going through some of these issues you're not alone help is out there people are going to understand you just need to take that step and go find it go find help people the people are waiting for you right now they're waiting to give you help
0: that that they are many thanks to uh, to Robert for uh, a great great conversation and you know he said to me uh, unfortunately we had just turned the mic off but he said to me um, that he's lost more friends uh, from the military to suicide than he has in uh, in combat and sadly that is a um, that's a pretty common thing that the statistics are nationally that more veterans die uh, by their own hand than they do um, fighting in combat and uh, it would be great if we could Find a way to bring some comfort to those people who who have given uh, given so much. All right, now now I feel like fucking Hank Williams Junior is going to come out and sing. Um, before I take it out with, uh, and I got a thick stack of surveys. I'm pushing the time limit on uh, this week's episode. We're we're going to probably clock in around two hours. And I don't care. There's so many surveys that I that I wanted to read. Um, but before we get to those, um, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the show. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. And um, you can go there and you can support us financially by making a one-time PayPal donation or, my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. You only have to fill it out once and then uh, automatically uh, PayPal Gives me a couple of your dollars every month. You can uh, sign up for as little as five bucks a month, um, and I really, really appreciate it. It's um, it's some a uh, little bit of financial stability that kind of lets me know how close I am to getting my to my uh, my dream of being able to support myself doing this show. And those of you that do uh, do support me, thank you so so much. Um, you can support us non financially by going oh. The other thing I forgot is you can also, uh, when you shop at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. That way, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. doesn't cost you anything. You can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And you can um, help us by spreading the word through social media, um, Tumblr, Facebook. You know the sites. All right. going to kick it off with... Um, Survey from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself bomb. He's straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes. And I never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I have an intense desire to have sex with an underage girl. I absolutely hate myself for it. The only thing I can do to control the attraction is to not go to those types of websites It works for the most part but occasionally i slip up and before i realize what i'm doing i'm surfing the deep dark parts of the web i started with only pedophilia but in the last few years have branched out to incest rape necrophilia and bestiality deepest darkest secrets when i was 13 one of my brother's friends raped me in my bed i was sleeping in the beginning but started to wake up towards the end i don't hate her for doing it as i realized that she was abused as well She was only a year older than me, which makes me think someone had done it to her and that she thought it was normal. I absolutely hate myself. I've built up so many walls in my head that it is damn near impossible to let anyone in. I desperately need someone to help me. I want someone to be my white knight and just notice that I'm having a hard time with life. But I realize that will never happen because I actively try to block all red flags from popping up. Um bomb i highly highly recommend going to a therapist and getting into a support group um and not minimizing what happened to you um so many people minimize when males have been the victim of um unwanted sexual whatever you want to call it from from females um and I read survey after survey after survey of guys that were molested or raped or sexualized by a female, and they de- they just don't give it they don't give it the weight that um, that it deserves. And I was I was one of those uh, one of those people. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Transsexuals or a woman with a strap-on. I love the feeling of someone taking the power away to give me pleasure. I am constantly having thoughts and fantasies of raping a teenage girl. Uh, whenever I look at young girls in public, I mentally punch myself in the face. Whenever I look at that type of porn on the web, I feel terrible before, during, and after masturbation. Well, that clearly sounds to me like, like a sex addiction. And... um highly, highly recommend you going to get help for that. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, it would take a large amount of trust to tell a partner about the rape and the fantasy of using a strap-on. I'm absolutely terrified of people learning my secrets and weaknesses. If my, par- uh, if my partner were to reveal my secrets, I would be devastated. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, I hate the fact that I am turned on by the thought of raping a young girl. I would never spread that pain to anyone but just having those thoughts in my head makes me think i should kill myself just so i don't have the chance to hurt someone sexual abuse is a chain one one will break and cause another to break which will cause another another to break and so on i am doing everything i can to stay strong keep myself together but with all the damage i have i honestly don't think i can keep it together anymore I don't want to continue that chain of abuse, and I think that suicide is my only option. No, suicide is not your only option. Um, support group and therapy and letting professionals help you is, uh, is an option. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? It would greatly help me and hopefully some others if you would have more interviews with younger people who are still battling their demons. Uh, I am trying. I am trying, but I'm an old fuck and um if you're young and you live in the Los Angeles area and you think your your story um is um, i don't know what the right qualifies to uh be heard on this podcast um contact me mentalpod at gmail dot com but i don't do phone phoners uh i've just had such bad experience um with using skype and having audio that is unusable and um That's very disappointing after spending an hour and a half on the phone with somebody and then there's some hiss or static or something. Uh, This is from the Body Shame uh, survey filled out by Shelly. She's straight. She's 17. Um, What do you dislike or like about your body? I hate my nose, my skin, my stomach, my eyes, my forehead, my jaw, and my thighs. I hate everything about how I look. One time I tried to cut my own nose off with a knife because I was so ashamed of it. I hate being so deeply disgusted with how I look that I shut myself in my house like a recluse because I think I'm a hideous monster. I have dark, obsessive thoughts about mutilating myself because I believe even after that I'd look better than how I do right now. Oh, Shelley. send it a big hug your way and i encourage you to get help too cuz that uh, that sounds like body dysmorphia i'm not sure i'm not sure what the the names are but um i read so many surveys from people that just detest their bodies and i think everybody has definitely has parts about themselves that they don't that they don't like that they wish were different but you know that's a i think what shelly is is talking about is just so intensely um Negative. Um, My heart goes out to you, Shelly. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself dreadlocked. He's straight. He's in his 20s. Was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. He adds, absolutely batshit crazy. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. I lived at home with my mother who would regularly pass out after heavy drinking sessions on her own. It was the half an hour to an hour before she would pass out that was the scariest moments for me. This was the time when she would increase her berating of me and would tell me how much of a failure I was and how she didn't want me to begin with. It was upon finishing this tirade that she would, quote, feel bad and try to make it up to me by trying to get me to have sex with her to the point where I would have to use force to stop her. (sighs) For, For those of you that think that I read more surveys about women abusing men, um, You'd be surprised how many of these surveys I'm, I'm really not reading a disproportionate amount from what is reported in the, in the surveys. Um, wow, that is so fucking heavy, man. That is so fucking heavy. deepest darkest thoughts. I often think about how much fun it would be manipulating people to do things that they wouldn't normally, mostly harmless things, but there are times when I would stray into the freaky and very disturbing category. I often find myself on the bus or a train dreaming up scenarios for different people which I could play God in the lives of those around me. I even dream up alternate realities for the people on the bus that I've never met before and how much fun it would be to create a huge bald eagle that I could telepathic That I telepathically controlled to eat various people I see in my daily travelings. That would be nice if we all had our own uh, personal bald eagle that we telepathically controlled. Until you had to check it in at the airport when you're traveling. (laughs) That was almost like an Andy Kindler. Mm. Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets. I have always wanted to get married and have a family, but I am so insecure around women. I may act confident and brash when I'm in public, but on the inside, I question everything in such huge detail that I often go really quiet and become in a kind of trance doing so. When people notice and ask me what I'm thinking about, I feel so ashamed at what I do that I stutter and stumble over my words, only to blurt out a whole bunch of bullshit about daydreaming or some dicky abstract question about something stupid. That I'm mentally prepared for just in case I get caught in one of my self-criticism moods. The question I have for the next time I get caught is, is there is there an exception to every rule? Is there an exception to that rule? I don't know if I understand that. Oh, if there's an exception to every rule, is there an exception to that rule? I'm still confused. Um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I prefer not to answer this question. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, I would tell my partner about them, not straight away, but at an appropriate time. Sex is the thing that both parties should enjoy, and if acting on a fantasy is something that would be fun, then why not talk about it? Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, the more I think about wanting to spend the rest of my life with someone, the more I realize I deserve to be alone. I've had such bad luck in dating. All my past partners have cheated on me and treated me like crap. And I can't help but feel like this is the best I can do. Uh, I I sound like a broken record, but please go get help, Dreadlocked. Please go get help. The shit that your mom did to you is so fucked up and invalidating and crazy-making. That's a lot of shit for somebody to process. How, how could any child go through that and not have their confidence shattered? But it is, you are not broken, in my opinion. I've seen very, very few people that are ever beyond healing. The most amazing shit. I've seen happen in support groups, people who were just absolutely abused. To you can't you can't believe um, how healthy and functioning. And um all right, next survey is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Two Ton Tesla. So you know she's got a lot of love about her body. She's by, she's in her thirties. Um, She writes, I hate every every square fucking inch, yard, mile of my hideous girth. Really, it's not dislike, it's disgust. I can't stand the bitch, and just in case she tries to one-up me and lose about 200 pounds, she'll never lose the cut marks that I've given her and will continue to give her. She'll never be beautiful, never. Pay me no mind, I'm no longer here. Oh my God, I want to give you the fucking biggest hug. Oh, please start being your best friend. Please stop being your enemy. And I'm talking to myself as well. Oh, why do we beat ourselves up? This is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Eshkol. He's straight. He's uh, between 18 and 19. He writes, uh, "I don't know what my face looks like when I smile. I have to look in the mirror to realize how vulnerable I look to other people and beat myself up for looking like a pussy. I have crazy eyes. My voice is high, and I feel deeply ashamed and not masculine enough to, to survive in this hostile world." Well, there's lots of there's lots of nice people in the world that you don't have to be afraid of, but the the struggle is finding them and surrounding yourself with them. That, that seems to be the, the battle. This is also from the Body Shame Survey filled out by Melly P. She's uh, straight, but dying to make love to a woman before I die, she writes. She's in her 40s. What do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, I, I only come remotely close to liking my body in the myriad of places I've cut, burned, scarred, and bled myself. My cutting scars... Actually, I'm becoming aroused lately when I'm high, my cutting scars. Oh, I see, new sentence. Actually, I'm becoming aroused lately when I'm high, and I'll take a blade and run it over my body, sometimes on the surface, sometimes punching through the membrane of skin and watching the red line appear, trailing the sharp, brief, trailing the sharp, brief moment of pain. Sorry, I stumbled through that. I am sending out the most hugs I think I've ever sent out on uh, on reading the surveys, and I'm I, I, no, I'm not going to apologize about this being too dark or down. Um, this is also no, this is a this is from a different survey. This is from my first day in therapy survey, and this was filled out by a guy who's between 36 and 50. Uh, What brought you to therapy? Lifelong issues related to ADD and dysthymia. Any fears you had associated with starting therapy? I was initially worried that I would not be taken seriously by a therapist or that I would be a burden on a practitioner who is likely already overloaded. Did any of your fears come true? Not even one. As a client... Describe what works best for you in therapy. He writes, not only having a safe place to be honest, but knowing that it was absolutely vital that I be honest in order to get any meaningful benefit from therapy. Also, coping strategies and reading suggestions. Um, What were your initial impressions of your therapist? I was fortunate to be placed with a therapist who was very open and relaxing to talk to. Non-judgmental is the word I was after. Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? He writes, yes, I came to feel this way after realizing that complete honesty is the only way to make any progress. God bless you. I love reading that. This is also from the, um, we're almost done for those of you checking your watches. Um, This is also from my first day in therapy uh, survey filled out by a woman who's between 26 and 35. Uh, What brought you to therapy? Dad, addicted to pain pills and alcohol, tried to commit suicide in front of us three times, special needs sister that needed constant attention, abandonment issues from my uh, part. Mom was an enabler. Any fears associated with starting therapy? None really, needed help, only fear was that I'd find a bad therapist. Did any of these fears come true? Nope. What worked best for you in therapy? safe place, venting, and learning to be an adult. What were your initial impressions of your therapist? She was amazing, attentive, and helpful. Um, Do you feel that you can be honest with your therapist? She writes, yes, but it takes me a while to get there because of my own shame in admitting things out loud. She never judges or seems surprised when I do open up. I have to say that's been my experience with my therapist. I've never... Um, I've never had a therapist, um, react to anything I said that, that made me feel shame. It's it, a good therapist can just fucking save, save your, your soul. Um, and finally, I want to, uh, take it out with, uh, this is from the happy Moments survey. Yes. Thank God. Come out of the darkness, Paul. Jesus Christ. This is, uh, from the happy moment survey filled out by Liz, who is uh, straight, although she she writes, considered myself straight until recently. Now, not so sure. She's in her 20s. And um, her happy moment, she writes, late in high school, I went to a big bonfire campout party at my friend's house in the woods. In the middle of the night, about six of us, girls and boys, decided to go swimming in a pond nearby. And when we got there, we dared each other to go skinny dipping. We were all pretty young and inexperienced and shy, but we did it. We swam around, had a great time, and afterwards, we sat facing each other on the deck, boys facing girls, drying off in the moonlight, and kind of shyly looking but not looking at each other. And then one of the guys spoke up and said in this awe-struck voice, you guys are so beautiful. And it wasn't weird or inappropriate at all. It wasn't even really sexual. It was just wonderful and sweet and vulnerable. And as a girl who had never been kissed and who had spent all of high school feeling weird and unattractive, it made me feel so good. What a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing that, Liz. And thank you guys for, uh, for helping me build this really, really cool community that that absolutely feeds my, my soul. And, um, I can't imagine, I can't imagine not doing this show now. It's, it's, it brings such meaning and um, peace and joy to my life, even on the darkest days. So I hope that you feel the same way. I hope that if you're out there, this last hour and 45, 50 minutes, however long it was, brought you a little bit of comfort. Um, oh my God, is it two hours? Are we over two hours? Who gives a fuck? If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, don't give up. Don't give up. Know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully. Everybody fucked up I know in some is weird, bizarrely up I know in some is weird bizarrely way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.